Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent uh, by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with step number four on obedience. And tonight we are on page 91, uh, beginning with paragraph 101. If you're following in the same translation, it begins with the words, at all times. At all times, but most of all during hymnody. Let us be still and undistracted, for by distractions, the demons aim to bring our prayer to nothing. So it's interesting, as I was going through the text, this particular step is on obedience, and it's uh, interesting to find this kind of counsel. And uh, I think what we find uh, tied to this is that we're talking not only about the spirit of obedience, but the practice of it itself. And what that leads us to do, the kinds of disciplines that we seek to maintain, uh, just as the monks looked at their work during the day as a kind of obedience and called it that, that our vigilance in terms of our watchfulness of heart and how we pray, too, is guided by that same spirit. So our practice of prayer is guided by the spirit of obedience. And so how we take up the hymnody, how we pray the, the hymns and the psalms, are to be guided by the, the tradition and the wisdom of the fathers. And in particular, John tells us here uh, to let us be still and undistracted, uh, to come to it, not with any kind of agitation, but as we engage in it, uh, to maintain a kind of stillness and not to allow our, our minds to wander, our thoughts to wander. Uh, because the moment that we begin to do this is when we open ourselves again uh, to the demons who draw us into greater distraction, pull us away from our attentiveness to what it is that we're praying and its meaning, and perhaps into temptation itself. And so it is this spirit of obedience uh, that, that guides us uh, in terms uh, of our piety, uh, giving God the worship that is his due and being attentive to him and directing our love and devotion to him uh, with this kind of diligence where we are, are not simply allowing our thoughts to wander or go where, where they want to go. And, and perhaps in many ways, this is one of the greatest disciplines for us uh, to keep our, our minds from becoming scattered and so, sometimes more difficult than dealing at times with our various appetites uh, during the course of the day. Paragraph 102, a servant of the Lord is he who in body stands before men, but in mind knocks at heaven with prayer. Uh, I've often been asked about this whenever quote, quoted online. Uh, you know, how is it that we are attentive to others and attentive to God at the same time? And, uh, and this is where the, the focusing on the practice of unceasing prayer, tied to stillness of heart, of not allowing our, our minds to wander throughout the course of the day, that uh, this unceasing prayer begins to emerge, the prayer of the heart, where the deepest levels, even on the deepest levels of our consciousness, that the calling out to the Lord is something that continues even when we are before men, as he describes here, engaging others, that the prayer so forms the mind and heart that we become prayer. So even in our engagement of others in our day-to-day -day work, uh, our desire for God and the prayer that is reflective of that, as well as our uh, penitential spirit, our repentant spirit, uh, is directed toward God. And so the, on a deep level of our being, we can be engaged in our labors, conversation, uh, whatever work we might have to do during the day and be able to maintain this attentiveness to God. This would be our great desire that, and that it would even follow us into our sleep at night. And we've mentioned this before, that the heart becomes so formed that we are drifting off to sleep in the evening, not, again, not allowing our thoughts to wander, or uh, even when we are preparing for bed, not to uh, agitate our hearts through, you know, the use of the phone and 
you know, watching videos and things such as that, we allow stillness to begin to emerge and we take hold of the Jesus prayer and that leads us into our slumber. And so that the first thing in the morning are, are still our minds and our hearts are directed toward God. But in everything that we do, we always do it in the context of and in relation to God. So we stand before men, but always with our uh, mind knocking at the door of heaven, as he describes. Number 103, insults, humiliation, and similar things are like the bitterness of wormwood to the soul of a novice while praises, honors, and approbation are like honey and give birth to all manner of sweetness and pleasure lovers. But let us look at the nature of each. Wormwood purifies all interior filth, while honey increases gall. So, you know, beginning to look at our life in a different light. What is it that is true sweetness to the one who longs for God? And it is those things that are going to purify the heart and allow us to conform ourselves in mind and heart to Christ. And so to, to be able to bear with the insults and the humiliations that come to us, uh, and not simply as enduring them, uh, but seeing them again as conforming us to him, but drawing us into a deeper intimacy with him and the redemptive work of the cross. And so what pleasure lovers, John tells us, the worldly minded would find repulsive for the Christian is going to be as sweet as honey. Uh, and that this wormwood, if you will, is something that is purifying to the heart uh, rather than, you know, it's bitterness on the surface is something that gives way to a deep sweetness that when we're able to endure all those things, we're able to look at the other uh, without losing sight of their dignity as one created in the image and likeness of God. We're not, we don't give ourselves over to anger, but also we become free from, you know, that desire to protect our self-identity. If we become so rooted in our identity in Christ, then nothing in this world can take that away from us. And whatever it is that conforms us to his selfless and self-emptying love is going to be sweet to us. And so somebody insulting us or you know, saying something humiliating, uh, typically we will move to that defensive position very quickly and want to respond back either to protect ourselves, correct them, or, or give them a little taste of their own me medicine. Uh, but one who's gained this purity of heart uh, through obedience is able then to, to live in, and experience the fruit of that obedience, was, which is humility. That truthful living is not only acknowledging our poverty before God, but also our dignity in him, what we've become in and through his redemptive work. And that sh should shape how we, we view ourselves. And so whatever our experience might be within this life and however somebody might be treating us, uh, we might experience the sting of it initially. But if we are deeply rooted in our relationship with Christ, then the movement in mind and heart for us should be toward him. And when that movement takes place, especially through the Jesus prayer, then it moves from bitterness to sweetness. And as with everything, you know, it's the, I think as we look at this uh, step, I've, I've been entitling it whenever I post it online, the on the spirit and the practice, practice of obedience. And uh, it's in our everyday life of, of seeking to put this into practice where we begin to see the fruit of it. It can't just be within the mind. It has to be something that moves from the mind to the heart. And it's only in and through our encounters with others that we are able to grow in this kind of virtue, an obedient and humble heart.
Any comments so far? Number 104. Let us trust with firm confidence those who have taken upon themselves the care of us in the Lord, even though they order something apparently contrary and opposed to our salvation. For it is then that our faith in them is tested as in a furnace of humiliation. For it is a sign of the truest faith if we obey our superiors without any hesitation, even when we see the opposite of what we had hoped for happening. This is a hard one. And I think we, we want to see it in the context of all the other things that we've been reading, not only in John, but also in the Evergatinos, that this is a path that's freely and voluntarily embraced. And we heed the warnings of the fathers in saying that the opening up of the mind and the heart and our thoughts to another is not to be done indiscriminately. And, uh, but one would enter into this life with a clarity of understanding because eventually we're going to be tempted in whatever path we take or vocation we embrace, that we're going to be tempted against, uh, against it. And so a monk in particular is going to have to have that clarity of purpose and clarity about their life, knowing that they're going to be tested in this obedience in ways that go against judgment and ways that go against reason, and even how we view the spiritual life and what we think is going to be fruitful spiritually to us, or uh, what is uh, something that is going to be pleasing to God. That, you know, we often approach the, the spiritual life in this way. And I think that's where we, we tend to draw the line. You know, I, I can't stand this. This is unbearable. This is something that, you know, obviously isn't from God, we will we'll tell our, ourselves. Uh, and it's often with the things that are humiliating. Or when we are surrounded by, by those, perhaps, that are, are doing things that seem contrary to the will of God, or are asking us to do things that either don't uh, take into consideration our needs, or our talents, our abilities, uh, or that don't seem as, again, that they would bear fruit for us spiritually. And, you know, things that are humili humiliating rarely do seem like they would be fruitful for us. You know, I think, again, on a natural level, our desire is going to be to want to protect ourselves. And, uh, and John counsels us here to be you know, very cautious about this, you know, approaching the spiritual life, that when we look at the life of Christ, uh, the downward movement there from the incarnation on, the downward mobility of emptying himself, taking upon himself the form of a slave, a servant, and being obedient even unto death on the cross, you know, the greatest of humiliations and the, the worst way to, to be put to death, uh, that they're you know, according simply with human imagination and reason, there seems to be no purpose to this. It seems utter failure. And yet it is the means through which we are redeemed, through this selfless love. And, uh, and even though we know that, again, on an intellectual level, uh, embracing it is a, another, another matter. The only place that John... And the other fathers begin to move away from that is when it has to do with justice towards others, when we are, are protecting that on, on, in some measure, that, uh, that we would speak up or, you know, where there's something that is being done that harms another. Eric Iwanko. Can we apply this principle to the current situation in the church with Pope Francis. Uh, it, how do you mean it with, with Pope Francis? Just so I have some clarity about. Well, the, uh, not not to get too much into church politics, but okay. there are a lot of people that are not real happy with the direction he's going in, and and not real happy with um, with the um, um, decisions that he's made. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if this is a if. if 
it would be appropriate to apply this to uh, the church hierarchy and uh, uh, in, in addition to the, the monastic situation which it was originally envisioned. Right, yeah. You know, there's a lot of thought and discussion that goes around with this on, on many different levels, whether it's theological or liturgical in particular. And, uh, you know, part of loving the church is our willingness to suffer for her and even to suffer at her hands. And so to go through a period of time where there is this upheaval uh, in the way that the liturgy is celebrated, you know, and, you know, certainly the 60s and 70s, there were there was a lot of experimentation. Uh, many of us here maybe didn't experience, many did as part of this group. And, uh, and to love the church at times means you know, loving her, even when uh, what is being done is contrary to sense of our sensibilities and how things uh, should be done liturgically or beautifully or reverently. And uh, it doesn't mean that we would never speak or talk about this, uh, but it does mean that we would seek to do it in this spirit of obedience and humility. And uh, I think often, as we've talked about in the past, there is this kind of aggressive spirit that exists, uh, and not that it's only existed in our time, but especially in social media forums, but even outside of that, of painting the Holy Father in a certain way and, uh, and the realities in the church in a certain way uh, with, with a kind of certitude that quite frankly, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with because, uh, you know, sometimes this, you know, the spirit blows where it wills. And, you know, how do we know how the church is being purified and shaped or what the spirit is doing on multiple levels that we don't see? Uh, you know, as a priest, uh, I think we're in a privileged position because we talk to so many people in a certain framework too, you know, about the spiritual life and, you know, in terms of confession and things such as that. And we see the movement of the Holy Spirit and active in people's lives that it's hidden to, to view completely. The crosses that people bear, the depth of their love for the church, the depth of their love for Christ, and all of these things, quite frankly, uh, bear great fruit for the salvation of souls and for the purification of the church. And I'm not convinced that all the animosity and aggression bears any fruit other than the agitation of souls. And I think what we would, what time would be, our time would be better spent in personal repentance and reading the Father's conversion of life and of leading people through our own example into reverence and love for the liturgy, but love for the virtues and love for the spiritual disciplines. And I think it's easier for us uh, on, you know, to look at the spiritual life as if we're defending the truth or defending the church. And uh, I th there's a kind of danger in, in this because one can fall into a kind of prideful spirit and then begin to neglect the, the deeper realities of this, the spiritual life. That when, when all of one's thought begins to circle around these things going on within the life of the church often we neglect our attention uh, we neglect in our attention christ and how it is that we're entering in, into the spiritual life it's easier for us to think about it and talk theology talk liturgy and do so in such a powerful and convincing way that we feel that we're evangelizing where you know words actions speak more powerfully than words you know so a, a person who never says anything but in in the depths of their heart loves christ has given their life over fully to to him this can bear far greater fruit for the life of the church and we are called to love the church even when on the surface it can appear quite ugly for us i remember reading one of Renero cantalmas's books under that title, Loving the Church. And he's quoting somebody else, but he says, you know, 
tell a husband that his wife is uh, putrid, ugly, you know, the response that you're going to get back is fierce. You know, he's going to protect her dignity and identity. And our love for the church should be something similar. You know, that our desire is to protect her, to strengthen her. If we see her faltering, our first response should be repentance, conversion of life, because there's this radical solidarity. We're part of the body of Christ. And so in our love for her, the critique is not the thing that's going to elevate. It's the conversion of life that's going to elevate the church as a whole. And yet it's easier to do the, the opposite. Angela. Um, th this is very pertinent for me because um, I have for probably over a year um, been very docile to abuses that have been happening in a parish that I frequent. And um, it got to the point um, where I felt not saying something was wrong mm -hmm. and that everybody was going along and that these liturgical canonical abuses, like getting favored people to do the homily at the mass, you know, fairly, fairly uh, big deviations mm -hmm. from uh, canon law. And um, I finally had to say something because I felt that I cannot just week after week after week just sit through this and say nothing. And, um, and I, I do believe that there are times where you have to have the fortitude and courage mm -hmm. to, um, to say something and be willing to sacrifice your membership in that parish. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that, Father? Yes, you know, I think, when, again, when we see something like that affecting everyone within the parish, then, you know, it would be, as you said, our responsibility to go talk privately with the priest to engage him. And if that engagement doesn't bear fruit, then to approach those within the chancery or the bishop himself. You know, when the mind of the church is not being embraced and followed. And so, there, and so there's a big difference between that of actively engaging a problem that exists within one's parish than to, I think, do what we often see done, which is in a, you know, this public forum, uh, attacking various personalities or laying things on individuals that where we don't have any idea what's going on within their mind and their heart, or where that begins to shape and form the heart, that it takes a kind of, as we've often talked about, meekness, to be able to offer that correction or to address these things where uh, the aggression that leads us to act, the insensitive faculty that the fathers talk about, that leads us to, to struggle again with our own temptations. Uh, we have to be careful that it's not directed towards others. And, and it, when it does address particular abuses, then we still want to make sure that that's being done from a position of purity of heart and love, yeah. or we can add to what is destruct destructive. And, even and it, it, did, it did in fact lead to that because I went to the priest and asked him to help me understand what mm -hmm. was happening. And um, he said to me, oh, it's just an experiment. Don't worry about it. It won't happen again. Mm -hmm. And then of course, something else uh, is done. Right. So it, it just changes. So I, um, you know, I feel good that I spoke up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, and I think one can, and, and, but again, there is this experimentation and it's been going on for 40, 50 years. And, uh, you know, I think the healings that is going to take place isn't simply going to be through the things that we say, or it's not going to be uh, addressed in sort of this framework of theological discussion. I think it is through conversion of heart that it's going to take place, that the church is strengthened in this regard, 
you know, through the penitential life, through deep prayer, through our giving, again, our giving ourselves over to Christ in such a radical way that it strengthens the, the body as a whole. And so often when we confront these, you know, experiments or abuses, the first thought in our mind isn't conversion of life or personal repentance. And I, I mentioned this in past groups once, you know, when 9-11 took place, how the church was packed the next day, you know, when the uh, planes went into the towers. And because people were fearful, and anxious about what was going on and not knowing what was going on. Uh, but within the next day or so, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't there, you know, after the imminent danger passed. But what, what I remember that day is that the, the reading from the epistle of, of, Paul, of Paul was that when we encounter things like this within the world, evil, that our first response is, you know, supplication, intercession, prayer, that this, this is what is to arise from our heart, that there is a kind of Christ-like and cruciform love that is to shape our response to the evils of the world or the abuses that we see within the life of the church. And so even like with the scandal of pre the priest abuse, you know, that certainly the individuals who engage in that, that the church should have taken this response, you know, in some ways, you know, we, they were following legal counsel or psychological counsel, things were perpetuated for a lot of different reasons. And, uh, and so their individuals should be held responsible, you know, legally and uh, in, in terms of their participation in it. But, healing come again comes to the is going to come to the church in and through it begins with us and it travels through our heart and this is something i think that we can never forget mm. there's this radical solidarity that exists between ourselves and others saint and sinner alike and so all the things that we see go on within the church it's not as though we're disconnected from that see what they're doing you know, Philip Neary's thing was always there, but the grace of God go I, that he knew that he was every bit of capable of doing the worst of things. In fact, after receiving communion, you know, he'd asked God, protect me, God, this day, for otherwise I will, I, I will deny you. I will betray you. And it's these kinds of sensibilities that I think that have to shape even how, how, how does it, what is the distinctive Christian ethic? here in terms of how we we deal with these realities in and outside of the church and it always has to be shaped by the love of christ mm. ambrose little all right following from 104 it seems to me it's not really obedience if you agree with the direction you're given then you're effectively still just following your own will and mind. It's when you are directed to something that you don't currently agree with or don't understand fully that it takes obedience, at least as a practical virtue. This is where the rubber meets the road, as it were, with regard to one's bishop and the Holy Father or one's own spiritual director. Right. Again, you know, again, when it's directed to something that you don't currently agree with or don't understand, and, you know, God's ways are not things that we are always going to grasp. And why we're being led along a particular path that might even seem or appear to us to be rather dark uh, might not be clear to us and how that shapes and form, forms us. And sometimes it's only uh, in hindsight that we see what God was doing there. Because often it, it, it is sometimes through the most destructive things that the deepest kind of transformation takes place. And for, for me, you know, when I came into the church, the thing that spoke to me the most of, about that was the counter-reformation, you know, where there was this radical movement away from the church, but also abuse within the church itself. But the period right following that gave rise to the greatest, some of our greatest saints. You know, their response to that reality 
was this radical gift of, of themselves over to Christ. Mm -hmm. Ambrose, did you have a follow-up? Okay. Yeah, I just, sorry, I didn't have time to type this out, but. It's all right. Yeah. The, the key to me with regards to this kind of obedience is humility because it's a willingness to doubt yourself as much as you're doubting, you know, the, the direction that you're giving, like maybe I am actually the not understanding it or seeing the full picture or, you know, something like that, as opposed to what you see most often with what you're talking about, you know, in public forums and stuff of people having that certitude that they're, they're definitely right, you know, and whoever they're criticizing is in the, definitely in the wrong. Right. That's right. And it, there, there is, a, a, I think you put your finger on, there is a lack of humility there, you know, in acknowledging that we all have blind spots and hard spots, that no matter how clear, clearly we think we see things, there's always going to be something that's out of our field of view. And so our willingness to suspend judgment, even in the face of what we see or hear, and this is what we, it comes up over and over again in these texts, is a sign of uh, spiritual and emotional maturity to be able to hold in our, suspend judgment and hold in our mind things that seem to be contradictions. And especially when it comes to obedience and embracing things that seem to be humble, humbling and humiliating in dealing with insults, you know, to be able to suspend that judgment and wait for God to listen to God, ab adere, obedience, you know, to listen, to hear, you know, that we are seeking to listen to what God is doing in these circumstances in our life. And he's not, all, he's not going to work only with the good things that are, or that are obviously good. He's going to be in the midst of sin and evil and working in and through these things, you know, that even out of what is bad, he can bring that which is good and transformative. And I think this is, you know, the father so that saw this so clearly about themselves, but I think they saw this so clearly in terms of the action of God's grace in people's lives. That he'll often act in and through things that seem to be contrary to our judgment and our reason. The incarnation itself, I think just there's so many aspects of our whole faith life. Now, nobody here has problems with the Holy Eucharist, the Trinity, the incarnation. You know, these things are all like jarring to our sensibility, sensibilities and, and reason. And at least in the, the Gospels, we see that, you know, when Christ talks about the Eucharist and giving his body and blood you know, for us to drink and that life is found in it, you know, half of the apostles at least have the wits to walk away. You know, they say no, because they see the significance and the weight of what he's saying. And, you know, we can fall into this kind of oblivious, follow the herd kind of mentality because we were raised in this, but perhaps not seeing the, the, tremendous mystery of it, of what God has become for us and what that means for us when we receive the, the Holy Eucharist, when we say amen to receiving our, our Lord and God into our very being. What does that mean for us in terms of how we live our life? That should shake us up. And the fact that it doesn't, I'm always shocked when you read those very difficult gospels you know, that speak about judgment or whatever it might be. And you say, you know, you know, the gospel of the Lord and everybody says, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and then sits down. And, uh, you know, when our response to it should be, you know, a bit of fear and trembling, that it's like a bucket of cold, cold water that's run over us to, to wake us up. And, uh, you know, we've become so muted in our, our, our thinking and in our experience of those things, because it's become habitual. We've heard these the gospels over and over again, that it can lose its impact on us. 
it's been interesting stepping into the Eastern Rite and the celebration of the liturgy, what I've done for 30 years of my life, but now in a way, in a different way, you know, that everything is chanted, including the, the words of consecration. And that act of simply from the, my, my perspective as a priest, the involvement of the, the self, full self in the liturgy, you know, when you're done, you feel it. And as I, you know, I've been in these churches where there's been no air conditioning, so I really feel it. I'm typically soaking wet by the end of the liturgy. But, you know, when you're, 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 you know, you're calling down the Holy Spirit on the gifts and you're making the action, but you're chanting it, the incense that is used, the movement around the, the altar, you know, the, the bowing that takes place, all of it enfolds you in that, that mystery. And it's, there's not, I don't sit down once during the, the, the entire liturgy. And, uh, and so you don't get comfortable in it because it, it sort of compels you to be attentive to what it is you're doing. I'm not saying that people can't become just as oblivious in the Eastern Rite or comfortable with it, but the involvement of the full self and that can be a powerful experience. And, you know, what I love about the fathers is that they, again, they present the gospel to us in this unvarnished fashion. They push us and they stretch us almost to the breaking point. And this is why I tell people, don't be afraid if you walk away from this group feeling confused or agitated or upset by what they, they say, because we too easily move to say what Christ said in the gospel is hyperbole or what they're saying is hyperbole, you know, that they're just emphasizing something here in this extreme way. And we're, you know, if we, but if we really read them or if we really enter into the liturgy, we're allowing ourselves to be pulled into something that is greater than ourselves and should pull us out of that comfort comfort zone. Most people quit reading the latter divine ascent in the next step. If they haven't already quit it with obedience, they quit it with penitence or repentance. When John talks about the prison, this place where monks who broke their vow, where they go to, to even in, into a deeper kind of repentance. Because it's so jarring to the sensibilities. Even Thomas Merton, he said he read it and said, you know, I see so much neuroses and psychological illness there. And, you know, it's easy to look at it that way, out of context. And I think the value of the way that we're reading it is going to show us something far different about it. Okay, I've digressed long enough. Let's move on in the text. So we are on paragraph 105. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. From obedience comes humility, as we have said earlier. From humility comes discernment, as the great Cassian has said, with beautiful and sublime philosophy in his chapter on discernment. From discernment comes clairvoyance, and from clairvoyance comes foreknowledge. And who would not run this fair course of obedience, seeing such blessings in store for him? It was of this great virtue of obedience that the good psalmist said, Thou hast in thy goodness prepared for the poor, obedient soul, O God, thy presence in his heart. So we not only become confessors of the faith when we imitate Christ in his obedience, but the, the fruit that begins to emerge within the heart is laid out so beautifully here from us, for us by John. From obedience comes humility, truthful living. We come, come to see the truth about ourselves as well as the truth of, of God and his teaching, what he's revealed to us. And from humility comes discernment, the capacity to look at the realities that we are presented with in life and see them truly, to be able to see them with right judgment that isn't limited by reason, but is illuminated by the gift of faith. 
that the impediment of our pride being removed allows us to see that truth with a kind of clarity that one would not have prior to that. And he says, you know, from discernment comes clairvoyance, this ability to see the truth about the realities around us, what's going on around us, and what's going on even in the lives and the hearts of others. And we see this in the saints who, who have been deeply formed in this, that their capacity to see what is going on, what is afflicting or affecting those in their care, and to, to be able to see it not simply in their words, but in their very demeanor and in their actions, how they carry themselves. And then he says, from this one moves to foreknowledge, to, you know, to be able to see and anticipate what is, is coming in a person's life or within the world. You know, some of the modern elders on, you know, from Athos and others, other places around the world, you see their perception of what is going on in the world and what the experience of Christians is going to be moving forward or what the, the, the shape of the church is going to look like, you know, and something that is moving, you know, we've moved from this age of Christendom uh, and I, I would say that they they would they would say one is moving to a kind of back to an apostolic age, humbler, poorer, more teachable, and so more capable of bearing witness to the gospel uh, in its fullness. And so that might mean the church is going to become much smaller, more persecuted within society itself. But with that, you know, the rejection of the world brings will bring a clearer identity. You know, it'll compel people to ask themselves the question, what am I living for? Who am I living for? And what does that mean for my life within the, this world? And so it's not magic. You know, I think, the, you know, there's a certain connotation with the word clairvoyance you know it's not palm reading or you know tarot tarot or tarot cards uh you know it's the action of god's grace it's being drawn in to the life of he who is truth that then allows us to see our life and the life of the of, of others and life in this world without uh any impediment to seeing things with a clarity, with a piercing clarity. And again, we, I think we see that in the saints, you know, their ability to be able to tell people their sins even before they've been articulated. Or be the, you know, you've probably heard of the odor of sanctity, you know, individuals so transformed that there is this, um, kind of odor that people notice ar around them but there's also this odor of, of sin that some of the saints could pick up that would allow them to identify what it is that individuals were struggling struggling with philip neary of uh, padre pio was mentioned here by anthony in the chat section and philip neary you know the, was had such a pure and chaste heart from his youth whenever he was around those who lacked that kind of purity, that there he could sort of pick up the odor of that to the point that it was hard for him to be around it or stand it. Not that he treated people with any indignity, but it was something that he picked up in this very tangible and concrete fashion. And so John is asking, you know, for someone who sees and understands this, what wouldn't one be willing to sacrifice in, in order to have this kind of freedom and clarity about life, about one's relationship with God and others? And so, you know, getting back to what we were talking about, what Eric asked and the follow-up by Ambrose, you know, this is the path that we should be seeking. And these are the fruits that come from it. 
And this is far more important for our life and for the life of the world and the church as a whole. Paragraph 106. Throughout your life, remember that great, great athlete who for 18 whole years never heard with his outward ears, his superiors say, may you be saved, but inwardly heard daily from the Lord, not merely may you be saved, which is un uh, an uncertain wish, but you are saved, which is definite and sure. It's a striking thought that he hears what his superior is saying as something that will be. And wh where we find this, I think, in the gospel is uh, where Christ says, you know, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, or be merciful as your heavenly father is perfect. And it's couched in the future indicative. You not just be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, but you will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's being said as if this is the case because God wills it. And so it will be. And so you will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect because this is what, the, what God has made possible in and through what Christ has done and the grace that is given to you. And so we enter into our life seeking to live this life of perfect love, selfless love and obedience, not because we're confident in our own strength and ability, but we're confident in the grace and the will of God, that this is what he desires. And so our, our thinking should be that this uh, is, should be as natural to us to think this will be true as we would think of other things in our life that we would, would not doubt the, the will and the grace of God, that he provi provides us everything we need to live the life that he's called us to. And yet we often will hold that in doubt, and mostly because we are looking at it through the, the, the lens of our weak will, our darkened intellect, our disordered appetites and desires, rather than looking at it through the eyes of God of what he desires for us, which is salvation. Wren writes, I can't even imagine being perfect as the heavenly father is perfect. I would have to become a totally different person. And I'm sure that's the point. That's right. And we have become from the moment of our baptism, you know, that we put on Christ. And so we don't look at ourselves outside of that reality. And the problem is that this isn't emphasized throughout the course of our formation. It's not a rite of passage for us that we've been given this extraordinary gift to participate in the very life of God. And if from the earliest years of our life, if this is how we were formed and our minds and our hearts were, were shaped, that we would engage our, our, that we were taught that this is your identity. And so this is how we are going to live our lives as a family. And this is how we are going to seek to form ourselves. Then it wouldn't seem outside the realm of, of possibilities for us. It would seem to be the truest of all realities. And yet I, I think we're always tempted back to that which is lesser. It's the same thing that, you know, Paul struggled with, with the, the Judaizers who wanted Christian converts, Gentile converts, first to become Jewish. That is to embrace all the dietary laws and to be circumcised before becoming Christian. And Paul rails at them. He's saying, you're, you're asking them to go back to something far lesser that has no salvific value whatsoever and could possibly impede it by leading them to focus upon their relationship with God in a, a less complete way than what has been revealed to us. So I'd rather you circumcise yourself in the process and do the job fully, you know, because this is what you're, you're trying to do to others. 
And you, you begin to understand, you know, we've been promised and offered this radical freedom in Christ. And they were seeking to shackle them in, in a way that could not possibly bear the fruit that they had imagined. There's a couple other comments here uh, from Ren and then from Mark Cummings. It's so hard. I'm sure when we are told to put on Christ, we're meant to do so in the very, in the way a graft is put on so very closely and permanently. Instead, putting on Christ for me is at the most like putting on a coat that quickly becomes too hot or uncomfortable or unneeded and is tossed aside. Very good image. Uh, and because I think that's often true. And, uh, you know, we've talked in the past often about it being psychologically an auxiliary construction, you know, that we, we use that and rely upon it so long as we need it to make us feel comfortable or secure. But in terms of it really shaping our identity, that relationship with Christ or our faith, not necessarily so in terms of any uh, lasting or transformative way. Mark Cummings writes, it reinforces that I need to pray the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief very, very often. Right. Yeah, because I, it's, it's more than just saying that, again, within the mind. You know, it's entering into it to the point that it shapes, again, our, our very identity. And that's, you know, again and again, you know, when we think about prayer, too moving away from it, seeing it simply as a discipline to more like breathing, the essential reality for us on a spiritual, on a spiritual level, that we are to become this, we are to become prayer, that our whole being becomes a sacrifice of praise to God, not some compartmentalized part aspect of our life, but really something that shapes us completely. We live in relation to God, and that is to shape everything about our lives. Anthony writes, this is amazing. The idea, be perfect, even in the relationship to examining conscience, is something that can be crushing. But the blossoming flower of hope in God is something else entirely. This hope, something happy, so even knowing a person is a sinner and wish this hope were emphasized more in relationship to examining conscience. Absolutely. I think hope is the forgotten virtue. And it's this uh, ability to trust in the promises of God, or even what we were ta talking about. You will, be, you will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect that this is something that is said as a promise and a promise of God. And so the hope that that should instill with us, and even when our conscience rebukes us or when we see ourselves turn away from it, that our turning back should be something that uh, fosters a kind of joyful, deep joyfulness in, in us, even in the face of the, the tears that we weep over having turned away from it. And I think it often, without that, without that virtue, it is crushing because all that we see is ourself and our poverty, not the very promises of God or his desire for us and to draw us to himself. Okay. Number 107. Some living in obedience on noticing the condescension and indulgence of the superior ask his permission to follow their own desires, but let them know that when they obtain this, they completely deprive themselves of the confessor's crown, for obedience is entirely foreign to hypocrisy and one's own will. So, you know, often we will press a superior to give us what we want and press and press and press until it's granted, not realizing what, what it is that we are giving up. Whatever, all that's been laid out to us by John so far is being sacrificed in order that we might satisfy our desire momentarily. And so we are depriving ourselves of the confessor's crown 
he tells us, that our life, again, would proclaim uh, the wisdom and the love of Christ. When we live in obedience, in this self-sacrificing and selfless obedience, we become confessors. We, we bear witness to the world that what has been revealed to us in Christ and revealed to us on the cross. And so why would we want to move away from that uh, other than out of hypocrisy and the desire to, that we've, we're wearing the mask of a Christian, but not really living it, or that we simply want our own will. The one who sees these things is not going to want to run away from it, but run to it. And we've talked often about loving virtues and loving the thing that lead to the virtues. This is what we have to foster as well. You know, again, so often we speak of, of them in the abstract and uh, or as oppressive or stealing our freedom or our joy. When in reality, we should love the virtues and the things and the disciplines that lead to them because they lead us to true freedom and the joy and the peace of the kingdom. And so often we slavishly uh, embrace them. This is what Teresa of Avila says, you know, she dragged the cross behind her, not, you know, pick, picking it up and carrying it, but rather un unwillingly, that is. And so often that's, that's true for us. Johnny Ross writes, optionally is the grand, optionality is the grand illusion. We are inundated with choices in this consumer-driven culture that the way is narrow. Beautifully put, you know, that we often will approach the Christian faith in this consumerist kind of fashion. We are, we are willing to take hold of what appeals to our own will, our own judgment, our own sensibilities, and lose sight of what uh, Johnny says at the end of his paragraph here, that the way is narrow and difficult. And few take it. Very well put. 108. There was the man who received an order but on seeing the intention of the person who gave it, namely that the fulfillment of the order would not give him pleasure, asked to be excused. And another saw this, but unhesitatingly obeyed. The question is, which of them acted more piously? So, you know, on seeing the intention of the person who gave it, uh, that it wouldn't give him pleasure, you know, doesn't do it. You know, that there is, again, there isn't this true piety, which is, you know, to give God the worship and love that is owed to him. And so if God gives us himself in obedience, if he pours himself out in this obedient love, then our way of reciprocating that is to take the same path, to respond in obedient obedience and love in our day-to-day -day life. And we should feel a kind of radical discomfort when we, we find ourselves leading this willful life, when we, we, we are shaping and feverishly trying to shape how our day and our life goes to control reality rather than actually allowing ourselves to be led and guided by God. Because if we're going, if we move away from the things that are hard all the time and move towards that which gives pleasure, then, you know, more than likely we're, we aren't going to be doing the things that are of greater value. And for a priest, you know, when the phone rings at an inconvenient hour or you're called to the hospital to you know, anoint or take communion, you know, it, it means dropping all of your plans and going and doing that. And even when you know it's the right thing to do, you can feel this twinge, gee, I had all these plans, or I was hoping that I would have time to do this or to relax. And now, you know, I'm driving halfway across town and, you know, things like that 
to, to take care of another. And so, you know, it's often these things that we unhesitatingly do, guided by the spirit of obedient love that bear the greatest fruit. And finally, 109 for the evening. It is impossible that the devil should act contrary to his own will. Let those living a heedless life, whether persevering in one solitary place or in a community, convince you of this. Let the temptation to retire from our place be a proof for us that our life there is pleasing to God. For being warred against is a sign that we are making war. I love that last line. That being warred against is the sure sign that we are making war. That if our life is moving swimmingly and everything is going our way, then we should be suspect of that. Because knowing the tempter and what he does is going to lead us down that path. You know, to convince us that, you know, everything that we're doing is even godly is according with God's will. And, you know, look at what I'm accomplishing for God. And, you know, to be really, you know, very pleased with that. And, uh, but for the saints, what we see in them is that, you know, this is spiritual warfare. It's a battle. And to have a day where we aren't afflicted in some way, where our will isn't challenged, we, we should be wondering, okay, where, where was my mind and heart today? Was I really engaged in the battle? Was I in, engaging in warfare or was I hiding out and taking the passive approach? Spiritual warfare is, people don't like that term, that phrase. You know, whenever you talk about the spiritual life in those words, you know, because people want consolations or experiences. If we live in this consumerist, as Johnny was saying, consumer, if we have this consumerist mentality, then we are going to want faith to give us something. And so, you know, when Christ is saying, you know, about those who have, you know, you know, let all leave all behind and come follow me, you know, and uh, and then Peter says, well, we've left everything, you know, wh what are we going to get? <laughs> you know? And so even, you know, Peter, who's been traveling with him and listening to him, is wondering, okay, we've left every, we've given up everything. We've left home, but what, what are we going to get? What are we going to get? And, you know, the Lord basically tells him, well, you know, you're going to, you're going to get, you know, family and friends and all that kind of stuff, but you're going to get persecution. You know, which probably took the wind out of Peter's sails. But, you know, there is this expectation that we are going to be rewarded in this worldly kind of way. Whereas I think the saints saw our reward is to be conformed and configured to Christ. And to have the opportunity to enter into that spiritual battle, to be given the grace to enter it and enter it well. Angela. Reminds me of something I read this morning from Pope Benedict, where he said, we are not made for comfort, we're made for greatness. Mm -hmm. It sort of fits what you're saying here. Perfectly. Not for comfort, but for greatness. And that greatness is what we see in Christ. Mm. That, that's the kind of greatness, not as the world would see it. Mm. So... Okay, that brings us to 8.35. And, uh, and so when we close with the prayer, before we do, I have to remind everybody that next week, uh, we won't be meeting the Archeparchy all the, as having all the priests go on retreat. And uh, so I'll be away from Sunday evening through Thursday. And so we won't be having the group. Unless there's some way... This is such an inconvenient time for retreat. As much as I love going on retreats, it's when you're trying to put a home together and start a ministry. Uh, yeah, it's not, but all, all God's providence. So no groups next week. And uh, we'll pick it up in two weeks.
Thank you, everybody. Great comments, as always. Beautiful. So when we close it all, we our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Amen. And God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you. And Thank you. God bless. Thank you. Again, to draw your attention one more time uh, to the work that Ren did on the website. So beautiful. And now everything's gathered in one place. Uh, uh, all the different groups and podcasts from different time periods, but also City of Desert and handouts that we'll post there, as well as book reviews eventually. So it's a beautiful thing, and hopefully it'll grow over time. So again, thank you, Ren, for your great work. A ton of work there. Thanks very much. You're, yep. She did a great job working and moving herself. So it was yeah. fun. Great. Thank you all again for the comments. And please keep me in your prayers. Enjoy the retreat. Thank you. I, I will.